This week's episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by Adam and Eve, the internet's leader in adult toys and products. You and that special somebody can make this Valentine's Day one you will both never forget with this amazing offer from adamandeve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you will receive 50% off just about anything in the store. Just go to adamandeve.com. You will find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless collection of adult DVDs. And there's more! With every order, you will receive a free romance kit. I wonder if I said romance kit like a thousand times, if I'm even capable of saying it anyway other than romance kit. I'm not sure romance kit uh but it's a free romance kit uh there i did it i just did it but you know i didn't mean it this romance kit includes something for him something for her and something for both you and that's not all you think i'm done no you will also get free shipping on your entire order when you go to adamandeve.com and enter the promo code jeff that is adamandeve.com promo code jeff for uh 50 off free romance kit and free shipping uh, if you're not going to be with someone on Valentine's Day, this deal is so good that you should go out and find someone. That's what we're talking about here. Finally, a reason to fall in love. That's how good this deal is. Before you listen uh, to this episode, I just want to warn you, there are the most minor spoilers for the movie Her. Uh, we were just so excited we could not talk about it. Um, it's like we're like, describe some scenes. I don't know, like... I'm really anal about spoilers, and I was really excited about her. And if I had heard them, uh, I, I might want to skip. I, I might have wanted to skip over that part. Um, it's pretty minor, but I just want to let you know. Also, there are uh, major spoilers for another movie everyone is talking about this season, Speed Racer. So that's the kind of episode we're in for today. Uh, let's give it a shot. <laughs> everybody, welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am very excited because actually this is the first episode I'm recording with another human in the room in literally months, like lit three or four months. I've not done this in a while. I'm a little rusty, so hopefully my guest uh, will work with me. Uh, we will be a team. His name is Film Crit Hulk. Welcome to the show, Mr. Hulk. Thank you for having me. Now, can you explain what Film Crit Hulk is and who you are? Um, okay, that's <laughs> that's a good place to start. Uh, Film Crit Hulk is a uh, person who writes on the internet, yes, in the voice of the Incredible Hulk, mm -hmm. and um, writes very long sort of semiotical essays about cinema and sort of things at large, uh, not really a traditional movie reviewer. Um, but yes, it does all those things in the voice, in the voice of, of, of the, the Incredible, Incredible Hulk. Hulk. So this is a Twitter account you write for yeah. um, Badass Digest. Which what is Badass Digest? Is that the Alamo Drafthouse yes. film site? How does, yes. how does the uh, first of all? I, we've had um, the artistic director from the Alamo Drafthouse on the show. I love the Alamo Drafthouse yes. so much. It's the best. What what is I, I never quite understood. What is the relationship between the theater and Badass Digest? It, it's basically we're we're all part of the same company. So Alamo Drafthouse, they have all these other kinds of brands. They like they do Mondo and they right, do which all is that the is, movie theater yeah. wing of the or, uh, uh, which of the is company. the 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 movie posters. Movie like, posters, so right yeah, 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 and. Uh, Really, it just came about because um, the badass in chief, my boss, Devin Faraci, who used to write for Chud, mm -hmm. he basically came to Tim and they became good friends through Fantastic Fest and stuff like that, all the events that happened through Austin. And he was like, hey, hey like, 
they just came up with the idea of let's do another movie website, but let's have it be affiliated with what we do at the Draft House and that kind of thing. So uh, it's really, you know, it's not just movies. There's kind of like a lot of food coverage and a bunch of like other things. Everything that sort of fits into that Almo Draft House sort of lifestyle is on the site. That's and the way we talk about it. It's cool because Al- the Almo Draft House isn't just a theater. Like it wouldn't make sense if it was like, um, you know, the Rialto lifestyle. <laughs> right, yeah, like, exactly. What does that mean? But yeah. Alamo Drafthouse, like, it is a, a brand that, like, has yeah. things beyond the movies, right. um, I think, that it evokes. So that's really cool. I don't want to talk about Alamo Drafthouse okay. uh, the whole show, though. <laughs> uh, because you also have a book that is now out. Oh, yes. What is the name of that book? That book is called Screenwriting 101. And it is a book about... Screenwriting. How to, how to write screenplays. Yes. And... Why should we believe you and your screenwriting advice? That is an excellent question. Um, and the simple reason is because there's there's a lot of things that go into it. And mm-hmm. it's sort of thing that will probably make more sense as we talk. Um, but the first thing that I'll say is why does the world need another screenwriting book? There's sure. a million out there. Um, I've honestly always felt that every single screenwriting book out there is uh, pretty damn predatory. And I mean that in the sense that there, there's a kind of thinking to the approach and everything rooted around it that's like, hey, here's the trick to writing a screenplay, uh-huh. you know, and you hand somebody a magic vial and suddenly they can, you know, produce this immaculate work of art. art. And, um, and I find that very misleading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I, Is that I, true of like the, the big screenplay book? And yeah. I've never read a screenplay book. Um, okay. But the one I've heard of, and primarily, I guess, because of adaptation, is Keys. Is that his name, Robert Keys? Yeah, that's it, like the big story, right? Right, right. Well, is McKay, that bullshit maybe, too? Yeah, it's <laughs> no, it's less bullshit. Like, I'll put it this way: his name, is it Keys? Is that the name, right? No, it, it's um, uh, uh, McKee. McKee. Right, okay, right, right. And so, um, what what it is is really the book that has kind of taken over in the last few years has been one called Save the Cat. I've heard of that yes. too. Yeah. Again, um, I'm not looking to read screenwriting books. So like, if yeah, I've duh. heard of it, it yeah. must be it must be popular yeah, right, or selling right, right. at least. Yeah, um, and uh, and that's that's the one that I would say I kind of have the most problem with. So, the, can you explain what saving the, like where that title comes from and what your problem with the book is? Is your problem related to the title? <laughs> yes, actually, it is. Um, the great thing about Save the Cat is um, it's sort of a philosophy that. Okay, but, but here, I should explain what he thinks saving the cat is. Mm-hmm. He, he uses the term uh, to say it's this inciting incident where you meet your main character where they do something good and that gets the audience on their side. Like they save a cat. Okay. And it's like, oh, the audience will now root for them. And mm-hmm. it's this, you know, whole sort of G-golly world. Where Can you think of an ex- example of that from like a movie? Uh, <laughs> maybe Drive I don't know why Drive comes to mind but like in the beginning of Drive he like does that awesome getaway thing and you're like god this guy's cool right right well that's that's a little bit different that's that's different than like getting the audience on the side like his tactic is very rooted in like they're a good person like mm-hmm. that kind of thing um, and, and an example I'll think of is like I, I don't know if you saw White House Down <laughs> I did not I considered it yeah. but you know my friend Pat was not around and I was like Pat should I be watching yeah. White House Down or what's the other one Olympus Has Fallen Olympus Has Fallen because I'm only watching one they're both I don't two different kinds up. of crazy yeah, so they're I, both <laughs> which one should I watch I like White House Down. Is that the one with Channing Tatum? Yeah. That one looked more fun. That one is, it's the throwback to, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on his name, did Day After Tomorrow and oh, uh, uh, Independence Day. Sure, uh, Devlin, and, uh, Dean Devlin and well, Emmerich. Uh, he's a, yeah, Emmerich, right. Roland Emmerich. Uh, Roland Emmerich. Because it's, it's a crazy throwback 90s movie where basically, the way I put it is it's like, 
perfect construction as far as like characters, everything coming back together and characters having motivations and reason. You know, reason. it's like the soundest story in the world, but it has absolutely no taste. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's is that this, okay? That, that's, yeah, that's all it's, right. It's, it doesn't make for a good movie, but it makes for a really movie movie. So what is saving the cat? And okay, what is yes, the problem right. with getting it? Back. Um, getting back to it. My biggest problem with Save the Cat is it's a really reductive way to look at the way that audiences relate to characters on screen. Uh, like, for example, uh, you know, by by having your main character go in and save a kitten, you know, it, he thinks that's the way people relate to a character on screen. That's not really the way people relate to characters they see on screen. So how do they relate to people they see on screen? That's a good question. Is um, I was actually talking about this uh, with uh, Kumail mm-hmm. <laughs> Nagiana, and the, I was on their podcast, and he gave this example. So Kumail, who's the host of the Indoor Kids with yes. Emily, they've been on this show. I've been on their show. Yeah, exactly. You've been it's, on their show. We're all friends. We're, we're all friends. Great. It's great. Exactly. Um, is he, uh, he? He just gave this offhand example where he said, you know, like you're sitting there and you watch a movie and you see a guy spill coffee on himself, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm that guy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's we we connect more through fault and situation than we do admiration. What's a good example of that? Uh, it's, I mean, there's kind of a million things off the top of your head, but the, the way I always try to explain it is like, don't think about like an inciting incident. Think about Tony Soprano, right? Think about this deep, complex character who he's doing this crazy thing. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, he's this mobster. But the first images you see of him are in a bathrobe, slowly walking out to grab a newspaper. Like, we, we connect through sort of things that are almost mundane and regular. And that's the way we associate people through the experiences that are similar, as opposed to this, like, distant worshiping of a character that we're supposed to like and we're supposed to think is good. Mm-hmm. And so, like, once you understand that, and it's about the way that we relate to the situation, suddenly you can write any kind of character you want. And it's about what happens when that person is put in situation X. It's not like, you know, um, Tony Stark. Um, you, you know, he's this philanthropist, playboy kind of guy, and we are, uh, we, we're enamored with him because he's he's this crazy, random, like super, like person. But he's not like the kind of guy who would save a cat. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. It's about how do we, what happens when that guy gets put in a dire situation and becomes the kind of person who would. I have one yes. more specific <laughs> question about your book before we just generally talk okay. about movies and whatever. Perfect. Uh, and maybe this is the thing that if I were trying to convince someone of your, your credentials and mm. that you should read this book and take it seriously, uh, Edgar Wright wrote the intro to your book. <laughs> yes, he did. If Edgar Wright says it's cool, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> it's cool. How, how did that come about? Uh, completely randomly. Like, we don't necessarily like have a friendship or relationship or anything like that. It's basically... Um, I've talked to him a couple of times. Really, is he cool. He seems like the oh, he's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's <laughs> it's good. really cool and, and, and really smart too. Like that, that's the thing to really hammer home. But uh, basically, is he? Uh, I had written some articles about his stuff, and he really liked them. And there was just kind of a back and forth. And he knows the Alamo Draft House community mm-hmm. really well. And so when like we were getting ready to do this kind of book, uh, like Devin's like, oh, we should ask Edgar, and he said, of course, yeah, happily. And um, so that really worked out and was really cool. Um, and it, it was it was kind of like just a, a mutual appreciation kind of thing. All right, so <laughs> now let's talk about movies. Yes. Is Edgar Wright maybe the most exciting director right now? Is that a, is that a possibility? He's in, the, he's in there. What did you think of The World's End? 
I loved it. When you talk about movies, for you, is it like screenwriting first, everything else a second? Like, if everything's bad but the screenwriting's good, is that going to be okay with you? It, it's sort of hard to say because screenwriting is also a hidden thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, being behind the process so much, you kind of get to see the weird things that might save a movie, like an editor who comes in at the you know to look at this this mess of a shoot. Editing is so magical. It's, Editing it's, is the it's, thing it's people really don't appreciate. Yeah. I can't yeah. tell you how many, and these are just internet videos. But there's so many internet videos I've worked on where I've been like, oh my god, this didn't work at all. This is terrible. And then we yeah. edit. I'm like, oh right, editing right. fixes things. I <laughs> right. forgot. And there there are these magicians of the industry. Yeah, totally. Who, who, you know, they they they'll call them movie savers. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, it's it's sort of a weird thing. The thing that I look for in movies is purpose. That's generally is like in this scene, are they trying to accomplish something? What are they trying to accomplish? Did they accomplish it? Every scene? Pretty much. But oh my God. But, calm down. <laughs> but that purpose can be very weird. Mm-hmm. It, it can be uh erroneous laughter it can be a tangent that's an interesting tangent it can be it can be anything but i'm i'm looking for someone who seems to have a grasp of what they're doing <laughs> you know sort of in, yeah. in in whatever it is they want that movie to be it's sort of radiating across the screen that's what i appreciate it's 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 not like having a purpose of like this means this and this means that and let's go do this it's kind of purpose in the sense of, of a larger purpose a mm-hmm. sense of like there's a reason the scene is happening and it can be anything in the world but i believe in it and here it is and this is kind of a film critic question but yes are you thinking about that when you watch the movie or is it if the movie's good you're not thinking about it because you're so wrapped up in the movie it, it's interesting is that w- <laughs> You know, I, I feel like all fi- film inclined people have this process in their life where they love movies and then they grow to sort of understand movies and then they're sort of dealing with this cerebral part of their brain and this emotional part of the experience and they go back and forth and sometimes they're using one to justify the other. And the thing that I always find is that, like, at a certain point, you get to be able to do them both at once and it's seamless and mm-hmm. your heart and brain can kind of go uh, back and forth. Is that where you're at? Yeah. It's That's nice. cool. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So let's get back to Edgar Wright. I'm going to put you on the spot. Rank the three films of the Coronado trilogy. Is that yes. how you say it? I will not do so, wow, sir. Wow, really? Um, I, and this this goes back to, I guess, a larger Hulk ethos. Mm-hmm. And that's... Um, yeah, please. I'd love I, to hear about this. I don't, I don't like ranking things. Okay, that's fair. In general. And, and, it's, and it's not because it's not without merit necessarily. It's that I feel like it's an undue thing. Like I, like I recently did my top 10 list this mm-hmm. year. And the thing was kind of a big joke. Because what I did is I was like, here's my top 10 movies. Is first of all, you know, I, I say the first one. And then I'm like, oh, wait, there's a tie. And I, you know, and I say the second one and I'm like, okay, you you have to trust me there. I had these two picked and then I wanted to do this third one because I saw it at the last second. It was great. And I'm like, wait, wait, then I saw this movie early. And then I basically go on for an entire list and (laughs) give them all a tie at number one. All right. So how about this? If you could only watch one of those three movies for the rest of your life, which one would you pick? I think I'll I'll say I I have the biggest personal connection connection to hot fuzz that's that, I, I wanted you to put you on the spot because <laughs> i it's so like uh, you I, I wouldn't be surprised if you picked any of the three of them yeah. why hot fuzz um all three are great answers i i, I like I the, your answer. i'm i'm so i love action movies and mm-hmm. i and that's sort of the diet of things that i grew up on and it's it's a film that speaks those things so well and it's using that language to tell a real story 
while also sort of parodying that story, but not really parodying that story. Like that that's a straight story that just happens to use this like hyper language yeah. within a displaced setting of the sleepy English, sleepy English town. And I I love it. I, I think it's perfect. So you're saying Shaun of the Dead sucks. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> but but that's the funny thing about like when you rank things, yeah. it's like it's like, you know, taking your children and giving them knives and saying, All right. Let's see which one of you is the most loved. It's yeah. also silly. Like all three of them are like perfect. They're great. They're like all great movies. So it's definitely splitting hairs to pick one of the three. But maybe that's why it's fun. If you don't like ranking movies, what are your feelings about the Oscars as as an institution and as a thing? <laughs> I, I'll put it this: way. Um, celebrating movies, good. Um, caring about the Oscars too much, bad. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, so. Do you think the Oscars is a is does the good outweigh the bad there? Is the celebration of movies enough that you are you going to watch the Oscars? I don't even watch the Oscars. I, I, I I'm at the point the last couple of years I can't watch also, them like, unless yeah, you can unless on Twitter or whatever like if unless, something crazy happens you can watch it on YouTube ten minutes later unless I'm there. Uh, <laughs> like, it's like have you been? Yeah. Oh, uh, cool. uh, What's uh, it like being there? I it, this is going to sound like a really silly answer. Um, I'm at the point where the whole mechanism of all the award shows and everything else ha- has passed the initial um, uh, uh, s- surreal quality to it. Mm-hmm. A- and you sort of get to this place where you realize it's a comfortable thing. Like, oh, these are all people. Um, they're just people dealing with a crazy situation. At the Oscars. In, in general. Their lives in general right, right, right. are all pretty crazy. And they're dealing with them in concept. And they're, they're like seeking this kind of normalcy. And believe it or not, it's a weird thing that once you get to a certain point, there's there's a kind of normalcy to it that they all can rejoice in because they all mutually kind of understand what it is. Mm-hmm. And that sounds very strange considering that most people are just looking in on that. Um, but it's a really weird thing. But you get to see it. And it's... Is it fun? Yeah. Like, if I get the I, chance, I'm, I should go. Oh, yeah. Oh, with, without it. I, I would, without, I, yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. Are you, like, stuck in the back all the way there? Nothing personal, but I'm, I, know, I, uh, I, yeah. It seems like, you know, they saved the front row for, like, Jack Nicholson. And oh, yeah, yeah. Right I, I'm not sitting next to Jack. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it's this it's this thing. It, it depends. When, when what happens? I, I've, I, I, no. The rest of the interview could be about you attending the Oscars. <laughs> no. what, but, what happens? But it's, like, all, the, all these award shows, it, it like... It's very political the way the seating goes yeah, because that. because there's the most likely to win and then there's the people they want around cameras mm-hmm. and then all nominees have to be within a certain area and then there's the people who are attached to the things and the projects involved who are there and you're there but you're not part but you're not part of the party mm-hmm. if that makes sense but you're part of the larger group the contingent group and so like everybody has the contingency groups and they're sitting elsewhere but also that theater is really big so and then you have the people attending who get through invites and it, it, so there's like a layering that all goes back past that initial grouping and then you just end up at whichever party the people you know are going to. And, and it's like this, I don't know, it takes a lot of coordination. It's very stressful. What <laughs> happens during the commercials? Is it like between innings? You're all just like going to Yeah, it's between innings. It, it's, it's exactly what it is. So it, I'm innings. so interested in seeing the, everyone at the Oscars like bored, like yeah. nothing happening for Because yeah. that's something you, you, don't, you don't get to yeah. see that piece of it, you know? Yeah. Like I loved um, – and the award shows like at the Golden Globes, which was recently on in the background while I was playing a board game. I did not watch the Golden <laughs> Globe, but during the Golden Globes, um, like when they cut to commercial, they show these random vignettes of like 
you know, like Bradley Cooper just talking to Christian Bale, and you're like, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, what what are these what are these guys talking about right now? Or just like, just yeah. I, I just like seeing random. I don't enjoy like celebrity culture. I just like seeing like the random people interact. Right. You know, right. So we're so far off track. Oscars, yes. <laughs> we're talking about Oscars. What about the Oscar nominees this year? Um, I this is gonna. I wrote I wrote them down because I oh, okay because I should you, I read them to you? Sure, go all for right. it. First of all, I got a I got a, an Oscar. Yeah. This is an Oscar categorization. Looking at the adapted screenplays, there's mm-hmm. Twelve Years a Slave, Philomena, Captain Phillips, Before Midnight, and Wolf of Wall Street. Before Midnight, I was like, how is that adapted? And it says based on characters created in Before Sunrise. Or I, I get them all confused. I get the three names in that movie confused. Yeah. Be- Why is that adapted? Like, if it's a sequel, it's automatically adapted. Is that the rule? I, I. Yes, I guess it is. so, right? I, it I, it's funny. This is kind of news to me, but that makes that makes, a bullshit rule, right? Th- there's a lot of those, though. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I don't know if you saw the the hubbub about uh, please, Mr. Kennedy didn't get nominated because they were kind of doing a riff on another song that mm-hmm. was kind of like I, I, I can't remember the specifics of it, but there's, there's I would watch the Oscar ceremony if they were doing Please Mr. Kennedy, which is from Inside oh, exactly. Lewin Davis. Yes. Uh if they if like you get um you know Justin Timberlake and Adam Oscar Driver whatever his name is, and Adam Driver on stage. <laughs> I, that I that I'd tune in for. Absolutely. Um yeah, so of of those movies, I don't know. No. You got a favorite? Uh, I slave Philomena, Captain Phillips, Before Midnight, Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street, probably. I actually didn't like Wolf of Wall Street that much. Did you like it? it I, like I, I, I loved it. It was one of really? my favorites of the year. Yeah. What, what, like, so looking at it from a screenplay angle, like, okay. what about that movie did you like? Um, it, it's sort of hard to explain, but it's a, um, the movie, oh God. I kind of have to do the the whole thing of why I love that movie. Please, that I, I that movie is it's really fun and it's really funny, and it's also three hours of like Martin Scorsese. I feel like he's peeking out from around the camera after every scene, saying, "Can you believe these assholes?" Like, <laughs> just like it's it's like this elongated dare, and you keep thinking that like, oh, they're they're gonna find some sort of ethos or pathos to the, any of this stuff. And they don't. All they keep doing is hammering in a basic truth, which is society lets these people get away. And society, like, holds up these people. Martin Scorsese isn't holding up those people as an example of, oh, this is fun, this is good. It's saying we do. That, that's a con- yeah. that is a controversy, which doesn't yeah. mean it's, like, a real thing. <laughs> right. but it, there has been some discussion. Yeah. Um, that it glorifies them. I don't think it does, and I no. think that's like sort of a bullshit yeah. thing anyway. I sort of feel like that's distracted from the people that did like the movie because everyone assumes that that the main problem with the movie is that it's glorifying it. Yeah. But honestly, I was just bored at the end. You know, like I just <laughs> I just lost track somewhere around that boat scene. It's I, like I, I'll put it this way: is it's not it's not it's not a traditional narrative and a story that gets yeah. you involved. Like I say, it's it's kind of like a three hour dare. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a bad movie. Like I'm not like. It sucks. Like no, no, obviously a good movie. Like yeah. obviously Martin Scorsese is good. Leonardo DiCaprio is good, etc. But like, um, I don't just didn't do a lot for me. Yeah. Um. And I'll just say to to finish off that last thought, it's um, to to all the people saying it's a controversy. If you look at the end of that movie, um, specifically the last shot of that movie, it's making that statement pretty clear. I can't uh, remember what the last shot. Oh, okay. Movie was. Two. I guess two. Can we spoil it? Yeah, let's spoil it. It's been out for a while, but yeah. basically, there's there's a sequence where we go and we see the person who took down Belfort, 
and he, oh, the hero yeah. of the movie, and he's riding the subway, and he, 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 this is what we give our heroes in life who take down these mm-hmm, magnificent that was a cool assholes. Shot. And you see like it, some random people on the subway. Well, that he's riding it's with. that, and then like we see Belfort, and he goes and he does the sequence where he's doing the sell me this pen yeah. in New Zealand. And the last shot of the movie, it slowly pans up from him as he's like taking these people's money, and it pans out onto the audience watching eager, eagerly. And you have this moment where you have an audience watching an audience on screen. And he, Scorsese's saying, we're the ones that propagate this. Oh, my God. Uh, I'm and, taking you to all the movies. You're so insane. Okay. <laughs> I, I wish you were there to explain that to me. Uh, yeah. And, and cool. he's he's that's casting exactly, it yeah. right on us and, and saying, and, and this is what I love about it, is we have an audience going nuts saying, oh, the movie glamorizes the movie. What society does. We do. We're the ones paying for this. We're the ones propagating it. We're the ones saying, take our money. And- it it points out as like how powerful cinema is because um we don't like it when movies let uh let the characters off the hook mm-hmm. there's something we we instinctually don't like about it yeah i think that's but, like so primal like right. we need justice like it's right. like a, such a that's but, a, like but, greek tragedy like yeah. it just needs to be in there exactly and which is pointing at well like really scorsese is pointing right in our faces and saying like you know this is this is the, <laughs> to put it simply is um sometimes you can't have a movie that lets the characters off the hook because it lets the audience off the hook mm-hmm. and so i think he was very clearly talking about this dynamic and uh and people had problems with it they prefer american hustle which upholds the con status quo of yay we like these people now you just yeah. wrote a very long, very interesting piece about David O. Russell. Yes. <laughs> what was the what was the thesis? Uh, the thesis is I adore his four, first four movies, um, which were Flirting um, uh, with Disaster, uh, Spanking the Monkey, Monkey, Three Kings, which is amazing, and mm-hmm. I Heart Huckabees. Mm-hmm. And Flirting with Disaster is the fourth one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, in all those movies, they're very like they have the same approach in that like he takes this very clear, obvious metaphor and he explores it through all these very interesting thematic angles where there is no subtext the subtext is the text so like how does that manifest in say three kings which is three kings most popular for right right three kings is like it's a movie about what we did during the iraq war and it's like a few soldiers who are going they're in the middle of a war they've abandoned um all these uh people of the quiddies who are being slaughtered by saddam and they're going off to steal gold and it's about like we were only there for our interests, and you know, throughout that process, they sort of learn the humanity of war, and it's all very clear on the nose metaphor. Also, by the way, yeah. the only Spike Jones starring role ever, right? Yeah, well, he was in Wolf of Wall Street too. Was he? He shows up for a few seconds. He's the guy who, um, who uh, uh, when he first when Jordan Belford first goes to do the penny stocks, yeah, and there's the guy who's there and teaching him about the penny that's stocks and, and kind of hitting on him a little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Spike. Oh, that's, that's Spike. Spike. He was it's also in Moneyball. I, how much I really? I, it's funny how much I love Spike <laughs> Jones and I like would not recognize him yeah. if I met him on the street. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that actually. Oh, so let's finish talking about David yeah. O. Russell before we talk about yes. Spike Jones. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so, uh, so I love those for a few more a few movies and. Since then, uh, he tried to make this movie called Nailed. It fell apart. He had the big Lily Tomlin video thing. Mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. there was all these things that went wrong, and he went six years without making a movie. And then he came. Which is like forever. Like yeah. you're basically no. dead at that. You know, yeah. in Hollywood. <laughs> right, or right. He was in director jail. Right, is what right, they call right. it. And um, and then Mark Wahlberg uh brought him on to do the Fighter. 
And he said, like, oh, no, 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 they have a good relationship. I trust this guy. He's good. And, you know, and David Russell's is a really smart, bright guy. And um, he came on. He did a serviceable job. He clearly was having fun with a lot of those family scenes and everything. And but he he was making the first time he was making something that he didn't write. He was he was a writer director, and all of a sudden he was coming on and doing this sort of journeyman Oscar bait mm-hmm. kind of thing. And since then, he's kind of been doing a lot of those. And I I basically postulate that he's I think he's making those movies kind of cynically. And kind of in a way that just placates the audience. And these are beloved movies, American Hustle. Yeah, they're um, very likable. Silver Lining Playbooks yeah. and uh, what's the, uh, the Fighter? Yeah. Uh, the yeah, Fighter. Those are the last three. Which is, I mean, that's quite a track. Those are three like heavily awarded, very commercially successful movies. Yep. That's a, that's a rare balance to strike and, three times in a row. And, and they're a lot of fun, um, and and they're very entertaining. And I don't doubt that for a second. But what I'm saying about those movies is. They also clearly don't care about the thematic message and so much that the only thematic messages they're crafting are kind of in a very cynical way. And, and I postulate in the essay and I explain exactly Again, why. Again, as the Incredible Hulk. As the Incredible yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it, it's really something that has to be right because it takes a long time to get to the point of why I think it's cynical. But um, And that might not be fair. I'm kind of judging in a specific way um it's hard to talk about an individual filmmaker and be critical in that kind of way and guessing at motivation and those kinds of things i don't like to do that and i and i sort of do it very lightly mm-hmm. but um yeah i he's just had a very interesting trajectory where i think he's abandoned his principles and has been rewarded for it it's hard it's very rare that you can pinpoint someone's career pivoting like oh, you yeah. can with him um, where there's like a real clear before and after like scorsese's Pretty much just been making movies for thirty years, right. you know, yeah. like, um, is like, but David O. Russell, uh, I haven't seen American Hustle yet. I still haven't seen yes. it, but I should. I'm curious what you think. Oh, um, right. it's very, <laughs> it's very, it's very entertaining. It's very fluffy. Um, it, I'm not sure if it means anything. You know, what except, bothers me about yep. the Oscars is it feels like some movies are just preordained for Oscars, you know? Yeah. And, like, there's, like, a type of Oscar movie, and, yeah. like, um, it's never a comedy. Here's the thing you have to understand. Um, I think the median age in voting the Oscars is 64. Yeah, there's, like, a sweet spot where, like, if it's about history, um, mental disabilities, which, of course, is in uh, <laughs> right. Tropic Thunder. Yeah, it's liberal, but not too liberal. <laughs> right, right. Um, about, if it's about movies, that's a, yeah. that's a big plus for the Academy. But do you, do you know what I think it is? Is It's usually... <laughs> Like, if they like movies about racism, it's movies about racism that are designed to make white people feel good. Oh, that's interesting. You know, they, that's not 12 Years a Slave. No, that's not 12 Years a Slave. That's the exception. And that's, that's how good that movie is. That... I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, David Simon wrote the, be- uh, the best anything I've ever seen on that movie. And he talks about really just it's the movie that doesn't mitigate. You know, because the, the big example everybody points to is in 1989, Driving Miss Daisy won. But that was the year of Do the Right Thing. Which is wow, still maybe yeah. the best movie ever made. Yeah, about, I love Do the Right Thing. You know the racism and melting pot of American society. Yeah. And who talks about Driving Miss Daisy? Like no one. No, no one talks. Yeah. You know, I read a really interesting article. God, I wish I could remember where it was from. I feel terrible. But the point of it was looking at the movies um, that won the uh, that were nominated for Best Picture ten years ago, and then the movies people actually remembered from two thousand three. Oh, yeah. So they asked people. 
what are your favorite movies of 2003? And almost none of them were nominated for Best Picture, except I think like Finding Nemo. There's like one right. exception like that. Right. But if you ask people what movies they remember, it's School of Rock, yeah. it's Finding Nemo, um, one of the Harry Potters, <laughs> um, maybe Batman Begins is that year. It's all yep. stuff like that. Those are the movies people actually remember 10 years later. You look at the movies nominated in 2003, I can't remember any of them off the yeah. top of my head, but like, yeah. um, even the movies nominated last year, like Hugo, who talks about Hugo, are the kings, <laughs> like so many of them like fall away so quickly, you know? Um, and the, the real test, I think, isn't who wins the Oscar. That It's like, you should really check back in 10 years later to see what's oh, yeah. the best movie. Like, um, time time will really tell the truth, you know? Absolutely. And like, um, what, just what people remember. Like, School of Rock yeah. is one of my all-time favorite movies. And like, yeah. obviously... Um, you know, I think I think it's a classic. Like, I love it. it's always going to be on TV. <laughs> I love it. I it's great. And uh, but like clearly, it was not nominated for an Oscar. Jack Black was not nominated <laughs> for an Oscar that year. Um, and that's the stuff people remember. And like, you know, um, I'm looking at this list. Like, of these ten movies, I think Twelve Years a Slave is going to be around forever. That's like the definitive movie about yep. that now. But like, um, you know, will Captain Phillips be remembered? You know, will uh, no. will American Hustle like? You, you know, like as good as some of these movies are, they fall away quickly. Right. Um, it should be said, like American Hustle has that potential to be like running, rerunning on TBS every weekend for like the next, <laughs> you know, however many years. I'm pulling out but, my phone. I want you to know I'm not rude. I want to look up what no, was no, go for an Oscar it. in 2003. Go for it. And um, that's the funny. I I will say that best screenplay um, tends to be a better barometer of things mm-hmm. that last. Like. Uh, you know, in 2004, Eternal Sunshine won for Best Screenplay. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and that's and, a great And movie. it lasts. And, and I find, you know, there's the famous example of uh, Citizen Kane wins for Best Screenplay and it goes on to be the best movie of all time. Like, to me, people, when they hear screenplay, they think of, oh, that best original inventive movie. Mm-hmm. And those tend to be the ones that last. So here's what was nominated yes. in 2003. Return of the King, which I'm sure was on people. Right. Uh, it, it was. It that's was, like a crossover. That was a timing Biscuit. Who gives a shit about Seabiscuit? <laughs> Uh, Master and Commander, which kind of has a cult. I, I, I like Master. I've never seen it, but there's definitely people who are like, "Oh, you gotta see Master!" Yeah. Like, it's a it's a small subset of people, but there are people that love that. Mystic River, great movie, but like, when was the last time anyone brought it? I did River? not like Mystic River. Lost in Translation, <laughs> Lost in Translation stuck yep. with us a little bit. Yep. Um, not and that one, movie. I think, if I'm not Best Picture, best no, screenplay, oh, it's maybe. Best Screenplay. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that article, which I wish I could remember where I read it. Like, really opened my eyes to like, I don't know, yeah, what like how we enshrine these movies and what yeah. we make canon. And, and, and that's kind of the thing I'm most curious about in my like sort of ongoing search. I I really want to be able to identify the kinds of things that at the time will resonate years later. So what do you think, looking back at 2013, what do you think are those movies that in 10 years people are still going to be talking about? Um, I actually think wolf has a chance in the yeah. way that it fits into martin scorsese's career that's really a big part of yeah, it Yeah, it's, it's certainly of yeah. a time even though it um, takes place in the 80s it feels very much like yeah. um a 2013 movies i think her is the same thing even i think it her, takes place in the future i think it's like her really is, reflects on the the current period her is going to be the movie i think yeah yeah what about uh, movies that aren't on this list like your school of rocks and your um um i think frozen i just heard frozen oh i love frozen made, i yeah. love frozen and yeah. i just heard it made more money than the lion king which you know i don't know because i'm not a <laughs> child anymore so yeah. like, i sort of lost track of how yeah. big this year's disney movie versus that year's disney movie was um but i think frozen's gonna be around for a while i, think, I, I, think, I completely I think agree like olaf's gonna be at disneyland for a long time <laughs> Good for um, them. which is great it's yeah. a great movie um, and what about as far as comedies? What was it like? Well, here's the, I, I, 
Anchorman 2 came out, but I... No, it won't be I Anchorman was, 2, but it will be I Anchorman don't. 1. Like, Anchorman 1's a, ten right. year old, a perfect example of a 10-year-old yeah. movie that didn't win any awards. Yeah. And it's I, like, I, that's another one I just wrote a column on, like, sort of the vague problem with um, comedy sequels. What is the problem with comedy sequels? Because I saw Anchorman 2, and I laughed. And yeah. if you ask me if you should see Anchorman 2, I'll probably tell you yes, because no. it's funny and, like, who doesn't like Will Ferrell as... Yeah. But is it a good movie? Absolutely not. It is a yeah. terrible mess of a movie. Here, but you should almost. But I, oh, I want to tell you to see it anyway. So how? Do, I don't even understand my this, own. This is what it how is. Reconcile I, this. This, this is exactly what it is. It's two different kinds of laughs. There's a distinct difference between a laugh that surprises you mm-hmm. and a laugh that is based on a set of expectations you already have. Um, it's like a magic trick. Like if I, you know, there, there's the saying, um, "Repetition is the death of magic." And so if I were to do a magic trick for you, it would be like you'd be like, "Oh, oh my god!" Like, but if I were to do the same exact trick. Right again, you'd be like, oh, okay, you just did that. But comedy kind of works the same exact way. And sure. Can, and so, like, I mean, surprise when, is such a that's, right, that's kind right, of, right. Yeah. And that, that's what it's based on. It's, it's you have to work with a set of expectations that a person already has in their brain, but they're not making the connection. And then you make the connection for them. When the audience has that expectation, it doesn't work the same way. However, the reason we laugh is because we want that expectation. It's it's a nostalgia laugh when yeah, we see a comedy yeah. sequel. It's uh, it's comfort food. Well, it's, I'm trying to think of a great comedy sequel. There isn't any. Ghostbusters two. <laughs> I like Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2, one. But like, no one on earth yeah. thinks it's better than Ghostbusters one. There's no good comedy sequels. That I can't do, be correct. There, there's there, you can if it's transformative, like Evil Dead two. Okay. It's it's transforming the thing that it was. Yeah. Uh, you can argue Gremlins two pushes Gremlin one. Well, Gremlins it becomes, two is a comedy, but Gremlins uh, one is like a horror movie, movie that yeah. with comedy in it. You can see but the Gremlins transition. Gremlins two is more of a comedy with some horror. Right, in right, it. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to think of one. I feel like there's got to be one decent comedy. Yeah, um, the, there's the pink uh, shot in the dark, Pink Panther. You can okay. make the argument, but that's you can also make the argument they they figured out the thing they want to do in a series. That's that's part of the argument. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of some that I like that are okay, like Wayne's World two. And like these are Every, all, these are everybody like a nostalgic pick too. Yeah. But um, no, a, a but lot again, of people like, like Ghostbusters. Like no one's gonna. Oh, I got one. I got okay. one. I think Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is just as good as Excellent Adventure. I haven't seen it since you it came out. Bogus Journey? No, since it came uh, out. Well, that was so, like twenty years ago, right? <laughs> uh, Bogus Journey is a crazy movie. It, like yeah. um, there's a, like there's some weird metaphysics stuff in that yeah. movie. I love those Bill and Ted's movies. And yeah. Adam's Family Values might be better than Adam's Family. What about that? I, one? I, I I'll sign off. I haven't seen. Okay. But I haven't seen either. Actually. I mean, these are not like <laughs> neither of those is exactly the Godfather yeah. two and the Godfather. You know. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about um because I definitely want to talk about her. Some of those original screenplay nominees. Yes. Again, that was American Hustle. I feel like we covered that. Blue Jasmine, Dallas Buyers Club, her and Nebraska. My father just saw Nebraska today. He was not crazy about it. <laughs> um, but I haven't seen it. But her, her is a very Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show pod uh, movie. <laughs> I loved her. I thought it was so good. Um, the video game scenes in her <laughs> cut me deep. Like, um, there's these <laughs> scenes where Joaquin Phoenix is just playing video games, like, alone in his apartment. So, the, I mean, the movie's about... I, I wanted to say the movie's about, like, our relationship with technology. But it's, like, it's one of those things, like, about everything or yeah. whatever. Um, but it's just a scene where he's playing video games. And you've seen that depicted before. But something of like there's something like very pathetic about the way he's doing it, and like I just saw myself playing video games, yeah. and I don't know, like it really, it really <laughs> cut me, like in a in a very meaningful way. Yeah, it's it's because Spike Jones does that; he gets yeah. that. 
and and it's coming from that personal place. Also, the little guy in the video game, yeah, Spike Jones voices him. Oh, and also like the way he controls the video game, yeah. And so much of this movie is so like, um, it takes place in like the um, near future, yeah. and so much of it, I was like, yep, that's gonna be a thing. Like they all yeah. have the way they communicate the way they communicate with the phones i don't want to give too much of the movie away because yeah. it's like i think it's still opening and like a lot of people just haven't yeah. had the chance to see it yet. yeah um but like the way they depict phones and mobile computing i was like that makes more sense than google glass that should be the thing right and like it seems more viable to, like it seems so much easier and there's a scene where like everyone's kind of like muttering to their computer on the subway and yeah. that's not a real thing yet but it was yeah. so it felt so real i was like even though that doesn't exist yet, I feel like I've seen totally it. gets it. And, and it's one of those things that um, he, he and I'll say this about like all the technology in the movie is that he he's doing a thing that's in the immediate future, but it's speaking to what we're doing now. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's what I love about I, I love so many things about now that that's movie. the first Spike Jones screenplay. Right. The first uh, Spike I, Jones he movie worked on other ones. I can't remember. I mean, he's worked. I think he worked on the uh, where the wild things are. Yeah. Script. Like I yep. think he's worked on. But this is the first like um, written and directed by Spike Jones yeah. movie, I think. Yeah. I and think it, so. And it's a really personal statement. Yeah. So I, do you rec- <laughs> like I don't know. What did you, what do you think about his writing style? Did you recognize things you'd seen in other Spike Jones movies? I, I mean, I, th- I thought it was exceptional. One of the things that I have to admit is that I see so readily in it is he's very clearly talking about specific people in his life. And it's a f- it's one of the rare times that I feel like talking about the people is based on is so overt that it's okay kind of talking about so where it. where is that? I don't know much about his personal life. I know okay. there's the thing with Sofia Coppola and a lot right. of people think so. Um, the uh, uh, What's his name? The character by... Uh, Giovanna Rubisi, Rubisi, right? Right. And, um, Lost in Translation is which him. is by his ex-wife. Yep. Sophia Coppola. So okay, let's yeah. start over. Sophia Coppola, his ex-wife, made a movie, Lost in Translation, and the Giovanni Rubisi character is supposedly, I think, widely acknowledged to be based on Spike Jones. Yes. Um, I don't know. That's like as, and the as, the Anna Faris character is based on Cameron Diaz. Like, uh, so I don't follow like celebrity right. lifestyle much, but like exactly, I, I know this. That's so that's the extent I know about it. And yeah. then. So what's the angle from her? The, the, the angle from her is there's there's three. With, also with Scarlett Johansson, by the way. Right. Um, basically, he was married to Sofia Coppola for a long time. The uh, character, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, I'm forgetting. Dragon Tattoo. Why am I forgetting? Mooney um, Mara? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is She's basically very clearly playing Sofia Coppola, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, they dress the same. She's wearing Marc Jacobs for most of the movie. Uh, like, it's pretty overt. But it's also in a very humanist sort of way where he's talking about that relationship and it's not biting or satirical and he's talking Wait, about which weak... one? who's Rooney Mara in that movie the girl you uh, the, the dark hair uh, girl um, the dark hair girl from um, I don't know who the girl is that he went on the day his ex-wife yeah yeah there where they have the scene gotcha, because, gotcha, yeah. and you know he doesn't want to sign the divorce papers and he's holding on and he comes to a place of understanding with that and he talks about oh we, we grew up together um, the, the other person the main relationship um, is actually he he kind of talked about it a little bit is based on Michelle Johnson. I don't know Michelle Williams. Michelle Williams. I Sorry. barely know who that is. <laughs> uh, yeah, Blue Valentine. Um, sure, yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, and uh, Dawson's Creek. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I'll go back to. Why not? Uh, but but it was kind of about a long distance relationship because she was an actress, mm-hmm. and so that that being connected but not connected uh-huh. is where you know all those kind of things get going and then a- Amy Adams characters is based on his good friend Miranda July he dresses her up exactly like her I thought she was very reminiscent of the Cameron Diaz character in <laughs> oh speaking of Cameron Diaz again yeah. the Cameron Diaz character in um 
being John Malkovich, <laughs> right. you know, like yeah. the stringy hair yeah. and like yeah. But it, and it's you not to say see those... that in a movie. Yeah. I know, like that's it. It's just the hair, or whatever. But like, usually, if you get like a gorgeous actress in your movie, like you pay someone to make her hair look good. <laughs> right. Spike Jones is the only one who like gives them weird. Well, well, well I that that's the thing is he he's he he was doing something, and so I say this, and it's like, oh, the, this person's that person, this person's that. But it's not really. It's he takes that as sort of the base of something and it might be the style of a person or this or whatever, but then he turns it into its own organic thing within the context of that movie. And that's all that matters. But and isn't it like, I don't know, shouldn't he be writing about his relationships and his experiences and it just so happens Absolutely. that because he's famous and because his ex-wife is famous and so talented that we know that we, we, we know, know, we who the, know exactly. those people are like yeah. presumably uh, before midnight is also about people oh, absolutely. in their lives yeah. and conversations <laughs> they've had. Like, yeah. I just don't know who, um, what's his name? Richard Linkletter's wife or ex-wife or whoever right. it is. Well, well, that one also has an interesting autobiographical story in that like the first one was based off somebody that he knew. And then the, the person it was based on that he knew actually died before he made the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, that that sort of spirit kind of lives on, and but it's to say it's become its own thing. That's the thing that's really great about, um, you know, art is. It doesn't matter what it's based on; you have to make it feel like its own realistic universe in in and of itself. Were there any? Scre- I'm sure there were. No. What screenplays? If you had a magic wand, and if we cared about the Oscars, would you wave your magic wand to get a nomination for? Oh, uh, hurt. Uh, her, her. I was confusing it with the thing I was going to say next. Four of the five nominations, which is uh, Short Term Twelve, was a movie that came out that. this year. Um, I saw it at South by Southwest this last year. Fell in love with it. Uh, it it's um, it's just fantastic. What's it uh, called? Yeah, Short Term Twelve. What's it about? It, it's about a uh, short term housing unit for um, foster kids who are not in, who are not you know put into a home, but but they have sort of the. Ha- Calling it a halfway house is misleading, but it, it's a, it's a group home, and um, it's just a painfully accurate, perfect depiction of that life, um, and it does so with the right combination of understanding and humanity. I, I cried like five times during the movie. It's just so outrageously done, uh, well done. Brie Larson's in it, uh, John Gallagher Jr. Um, one is it of available my, online now? Like people stop listening I, to this podcast and go watch think, it if they want to. Don't think, do that, everybody, but I, I don't know if the DVD has come out yet. I honestly don't, uh, but it's it's so good. Um, I love it. I, I think it's great. And what about movies I've heard of? Like maybe you like Pacific Rim? <laughs> uh, I did like Pacific Rim. All right, few. Um yeah, it's fun. So that will put that <laughs> down for best original screenplay. Okay, yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> no, I did like Pacific Rim. Um, I'm trying to think, like off the top of my head, uh, The Wind Rises. I loved. Um, oh, that's the Miyazaki one, right? Yep. Uh, I don't know about screenplay, but uh, Spring Breakers, because um, it, it was sort of made in a different style than that. I um, think Spring Breakers, which I didn't like very much, but um, I think that's a movie that has a strong chance of being talked about in ten years. Like, oh I yeah, think, and particularly that James Franco performance. Oh, it's incredible. Like, <laughs> um, again, like I didn't like that movie much, but that's like um, I could see people quoting Alien for a long, long yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so. Those two. I was surprised that he didn't get an... I mean, I don't care, but I was surprised he didn't get a nomination. Uh, yeah. Frank. Oh, oh, yeah. No, but it, it was it was an, it was too much of an outsider movie. And yeah, it's, once well, again, this is, this, this is also where it comes back to the fact that all the voters are, have the average age of 64. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Yeah, sixty-four-year-old people. I'm are, guessing don't are, like spring break very much. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's not even necessarily that they they can't. It's that it's a different language, and yeah. it really is. And if you're not speaking that language, why you're not are they into so it. old? Like young people make movies. Like is is, <laughs> well, is it getting younger? Is the age getting younger as people die out, or do you have to just be a certain age to be in the academy? Because usually you need to have done something of enough. Repute or be nominated or or be nominated okay. to get so into the not, academy. This isn't so, like gay marriage. We can't just like wait this one out and eventually younger people will start like nominating right. Pacific Rim too. Right, right, exactly. It, but but it's going to be weird because suddenly the thing that's like Pacific Rim will be what we're voting for. But everybody who's thirty and under will be into their. Oh new yeah, thing. they'll be into like dubstep <laughs> movies uh, that yeah, are like yeah. you know just sound waves or something. Yeah. And I'll be complaining like, well, what are the good old fashioned movies with CGI and robots? It's ass from Idiocracy, just like yeah, yeah, Idiocracy. Speaking of movies, that movies like, two in ten years, yeah, totally yep. Idiocracy. What a movie! Like. Movies that weren't even released that yeah. stuck with us for ten years. That movie gets scarier and scarier so and scarier. True. It's so true. What, yeah. I can't. What a uh, what a like a prescient <laughs> movie. I can't wait for um, Mike Judge's HBO show, which uh, Kumail will be on yep, too. Exactly. I can't wait can't for wait. that HBO yeah. show, even if Kumail wasn't on. I yeah. think Thomas Middleditch is on it too. Who's um, yeah. Yeah. A, a friend? He's in Wolf of Wall Street. And oh yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. What else? Uh, you wrote a column where you defend Speed Racer. The oh movie yeah. Speed Racer. Yeah. Totally. Defend Speed Racer. That movie's great. <laughs> so I've seen Speed Racer. Yeah. You know, I love actually I love the Wachowskis. I love I love Cloud Atlas. I, yeah, it was my favorite great. movie of that year. Yeah. I love like I love crazy shit. Okay. And even Speed Racer, I will tell you, is better than it gets credit. Like yeah. there it is an insane movie. Like I like any movie that just like does not look like other movies. Yeah. Like I like it when a movie you're just like, well. That's something I've never seen before. That's my favorite thing. Like I like seeing things I've never seen before. And Speed Racer is definitely that. And yet, I, I don't know that I, I would recommend it, per se. Okay. I, uh, I'll... Especially from a screenwriting perspective. Like the, the, All guess... I'm talking about is the visuals. Like What's going on story-wise there? Really a lot. It's What it is, is it's using a very non-ironic language mm-hmm. that's the way but it is it is wearing its heart on its sleeve as an anime as a story for 13 year olds as being exactly about what it's about mm-hmm. like, like that's the thing is usually when we're doing this kind of thing there's an ironic distance with it and that's not what the Wachowskis do they, they, they are going to live breathe and mm-hmm. act the thing and so what I love about that movie is it is earnest it is trying to do it. And so the problem is using that earnest language makes it seem like it's dumb or lacking in tact. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, it's sort of kind of going back to the White House down thing, only it's it's way better than that. But everything about the moments that it turns, the character development, what the characters mean to each other, how the conflicts play out, how they expand, how they all rotate around the same things and how they expand from those same things. It's really perfect fundamental sound screenwriting. I can't believe you're making me want to watch Speed Racer again. <laughs> but that's a, here's a good example. Um, Kung Fu Panda, the original movie, mm-hmm. right? I've seen it. Is one of my favorite examples to point to people as far as good sound screenwriting in one aspect, which as I say... You take all five main characters. Mm-hmm. All five main characters care about one thing, and it's the MacGuffin or, or whatever it is in that movie. I think it's the Dragon Scroll or something. Mm-hmm. And every single character has a relationship to each other, and the main thing and the way that they all interact with each other affects everything else. And if you notice the way that they all want this thing, 
it provides all the conflict that they need with each other. Basics of conflict, basics of drama, basics of understanding, basics of characters, basics of relationships, all right there. And the thing that, I'll put it this way, that's the thing that allows the movie to work, but it doesn't necessarily translate because some people see it and they're like, oh, kids movie, they're making a stupid joke about the clown getting hit. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what people think of when they hear screenplay. They think dialogue, they think this, they think that. But that's not really what storytelling is is that's kind of the texture of storytelling it's not the the like i say the foundation that's the word i keep using so going back to speed racer it's a movie with a great foundation that is just using uh hyper non-ironic language of anime of kids movies of all these things and it's being about those things with its hearts on its sleeve and so i love it for it i tend to like movies that do that though. i remember from that movie and i should confess i was absolutely stoned out of my mind when i watched it and but i remember that there was a scene with Racer X played by Matthew Fox, where oh, yes. like, who is obviously Speed's brother, which is like sort of a famous plot twist from the cartoons. Right. Famous if you're into cartoons, I guess. <laughs> um, that Racer X is Speed. That's like um, a big deal from the Speed Racer um, canon, just because I think it was rare. There were like plot, like, um, you know, usually in cartoons back then, I think it was like one setup until yeah. we die. Like, Speed yeah. Racer had like a plot twist in the middle of the series. So I think that's yeah. why that's so well known. And in the movie, it's kind of obvious, too. And they're like, hey, are you uh, Matthew Fox, my brother? And he's like, no. And then at the end of the movie, he's like, I was lying. I am your, your brother. brother. <laughs> like, they, like, straight up lie to the audience, right? Isn't, doesn't that happen in the right, movie? Right, that totally happens. And not, not only does that totally happen, it's it's kind of not done well. And it's kind of people that's, – that's people, people don't like the rug being pulled out from under them when they think the rug isn't going to be pulled out unless they're there with the expectation that they want the rug pulled out from under them. Does that make sense? That probably doesn't sort make of, sense. Sort of, like unless – but <laughs> unless you're yeah 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 you have it's two like, sets of expectations which is you need to understand that kind of thing is in play mm-hmm. does that make sense it doesn't mean that you'll disbelieve it or you won't fall for it but you have to understand that that kind of thing can take place within the universe of the movie and so it sort of seems weird that that happens because i think just doing the earnest thing would have worked a hundred times better yeah well i just you don't usually see him it just felt like i was lied to and i think that's yeah. what i like about it it's like <laughs> It's pretty clear he's Racer X, and then they do that, and they're like, oh, I guess he's not Racer X, and then he's like, "Ah, I'm just just fucking with y'all. Right, which is a weird thing to come from the place when you actually know the thing. Yeah. It's like the Star Trek into Darkness conundrum. Right, right, right. really? Yeah, like, like, they're like, he's not Khan. He is definitely not Khan. And J.J. Abrams said at some point recently, he was like, I kind of regret we should have told people he was Khan. And it's... J.J. Abrams is such an interesting filmmaker in that I feel like he's constantly learning from these things, but I feel like his instincts constantly lead him back to these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he he talks about like, oh, I'm making a movie like Super 8. He's like, oh, I never fully reconciled how to put a monster story with that kid's story. And then he, he, he goes out and he makes the same kinds of mistakes again because he, he's so attracted to this allure of like pulling the rabbit out of the hat. You know, in terms of his storytelling, that he's missing the fact that eh, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> I just, you know, I want to real quick close the loop on the Wachowskis. I just yes. went back to Bound. I had never seen Bound, but I, I enjoyed seen Cloud Atlas. Oh, it's uh, good. It's no, I haven't. Good. Sorry, I keep saying it halfway through. I haven't seen it since it came out. Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's I like, liked it. It's I'm... like, um, it's sort of like, um, like one of those like mid nineties like sleazy HBO like sexy thrillers, but the best HBO <laughs> sexy thriller like ever made. I love like, those. The acting's too. great. Yeah. Um, the story's great, 
And it's like good. Like there's some shots in the movie where you're like, oh, these guys are gonna go on. Yeah, like, they're they're gonna it. do a thing. And then and it's funny. Like even when yeah. you watch Cloud Atlas, you're like, um, there's that one sci-fi part, and you're like, it's literally just one minute in the entire three-hour movie. And you're like, holy shit, what happened? And they're like, right, right. These are the people from that made the Matrix. They, <laughs> right. they made the Matrix. All right. Um. So I want to talk to you before you leave. Okay. I feel like I have to bring up video games. Yes, you also absolutely. play video games and you write about the writing in video games, which is yeah. something that not a lot of people talk about video yeah. games. So for me, like, I'm actually not very interested in the plot and generally I don't like the plot in video games because um, I find generally if I'm interested in a story, I'll watch a movie. And when I play a video game, I'm generally more interested in games um, that are about the gameplay. Um, mm -hmm. You know, something like... Um, I've been playing a lot of League of Legends lately where there's big, no. almost no story or there's um, a background story or, um, you know, something like Braid where it's like, that, that's another example actually where there's a story like kind of trickle on top. I'm trying to think of something even more pure, like an iOS game or, um, uh, I don't know. All the examples I think of actually have secondary stories. In it, but I'm more about the gameplay is what right. I'm saying. Um, a fighting Ma game. Or, Mario. Mario yeah, is, you, or, you're all, in all a world. Games are you're really in, good examples. Yeah, you're and in like, a world. They're great games, yeah. and the, that game is about the gameplay and the, the right. gameplay design. And then there's games like The Last of Us, which I think is like uh, probably one of the most, if not the most well-written um, story, most well-presented story ever in a video game. But the gameplay is just like, it's okay. It's definitely stuff you've seen before, by and large. And that doesn't really interest me. I don't like the Uncharted series very much, which is another series um, where like the game, the story is very good for a video game, but the gameplay is just okay. And I feel like if I wanted a good story, um, I won't play Uncharted. I'll just like watch a thing, and then yep. when I want to play video games, I'll play video games. So to me, they're kind of separate. Except the example would be something like Braid or Portal, where the, the or actually League of Legends has this a little bit too, where the story's secondary and it's there if you give a shit, but it, you never have to stop for it. You know, right. it's like um, draped on top. So, now that I've said what I think about writing in video games, okay. what do you think? I, I think what you're talking about is something that's just in need of a solution, which mm. is that the problem is you don't you need a good story to make a movie function. You mm -hmm. don't need a story to make a good game. That being said, the addition of a good story will make a game better. And also that good story yeah. could be Mario needs to rescue the princess. That could be the story. And like, right, right, right. You know, and, and, just and that's a, a, a simple goal, if you will. Like, but, you know, you're saying the writing's not all the words. Like, the writing is the design of the levels. And, like, even right. though it's not written, like, you, you're like, oh, this is what Mario's universe is like. And, like, yeah. th there's a writing in that. that there's a language. Writing yeah. script. It's, um, there's the language, the term that they use is, um, you know, making the game mechanics a metaphor. Have you ever worked on any video games? Um, no, okay. actually. Um, no, not really. Are you interested? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it I, seems it's, like a totally different thing. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's a different, it's a very interesting process because I, I have a lot of friends who do, um, game writing and that kind of thing. And it is, it is a, a really, really different kind of process in that there's so much and there's so much required in a different way. And it's a lot easier to sort of not see what, the other hand is doing, um, and, and it's re it's a, it's unlike television. It's unlike everything, um, and so that's I think part of the reason why game story seems kind of disconnected in a large way. Um, but there are some games that that stick to that point and keep it very um, specific and in line. Oh, but I, I mean, but that takes away from the freedom of the gameplay in a lot of times and open worldness. And a lot of times you see them conflict and I think yeah. Uncharted and Grand Theft Auto are both really clear examples. If like Grand Theft Auto, 
Um, you've got I forget the main father character's name already, but you know Michael, um, whatever. Like the fa- yeah. the family man character, he's like, oh, I don't know, should I get back into crime? Goes outside, murders two hundred and fifty people, and then he comes back like nothing right. ever. And like, oh, it's pulling me back in. Yeah. I don't know. And then goes and does. Um, and you know, like I understand it's a video game or whatever, but it makes it hard to build the story when like the story is really working against um, the gameplay. And that happens yeah. in Uncharted too, where he's like. Oh, I'm reluctantly pulled into this crazy adventure. I'm gonna murder 400 people like with a gun, you know, right. like it, it's the disconnect. And um, uh, Tom Vassell, uh, Bissell, Bissell, I always, he's a friend. Mm-hmm. I always say his last name wrong. Either one, <laughs> but I was gonna say is he, you know, had this this great way of saying it, is because it's a game. You have to sort of understand that there's a language there that you just kind of have to get over that fact that's always going to be a fact of games you're always going to have to kill a number of enemies you're always going to have to otherwise you it will lose aspects of its gameness now the better you can integrate them the better but um it's like well i don't give a shit like i I like playing like i like grand theft auto like just don't put a story just write a story that's like and that's why i thought trevor was a great character in that game because trevor is the character that you're actually playing when you play grand theft auto trevor's like the crazy one I'm like, and when you actually get control of the character, you act like Trevor. You don't act like Michael. Right. So I think that's like a solvable problem. If you're writing a game about killing people, you just need a main character who's going to kill people, you know? Right. Um, I thought Max Payne, which was not a game I, I particularly loved. Um, I can't remember, actually. I think it also did a bad job of this where he was like, oh, I'm a broken man. I'm an yeah. alcoholic. I can barely function. I'm going to take down a helicopter with two pistols akimbo. It's it's that, and it's also I felt like that game was it was like a bad imitation of a Tony Scott movie. I just couldn't handle yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah, um, and uh, and that that to me is the real problem. It's I I think the skill of the storytelling is still the biggest problem of storytelling in games. Um, they're they're just not there yet, and I think that they. Storytelling, I will say, the last three years of gaming's has improved exponentially. Mm. Not, not, I, I really do, and, and I mean that in the sense like they're always good. You know what's games. responsible for a lot of that is Bioshock, I think, like because Bioshock's a game that's like a triple A yeah. monster hit game um, that also had arguably like the best writing ever. No. You know, um, also Mass Effect, I would say. Oh yeah, yeah. love Mass Effect. I love the writing <laughs> yeah. in Mass Effect. Love yeah. me some Mass Effect. Oh, I'm so glad you just said those words. I haven't thought about the game in a while. That's so good. <laughs> um, I mean, to me, it's like, I think that the skill, you know, they probably need to, I don't know much about the production of video games somehow, yeah. but uh, <laughs> it seems like the um, the writing, like, they probably can't get much out of your book, to be honest, because it, se- it seems like your book um, is about screenplays and, like, screenplay technique. How can they? I would disagree sincerely. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but here's why. Um, and to bring it back to the book, is the book itself is not, is has so little about screenplay specific instruction. The book is really, if I were to be honest about so it, so it's not I like would... all capitals when it's a character's name. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The, we, that's literally just covered at the end. Like, and this is the stuff you kind of need to know. Mm-hmm. The book is honestly like, I it, if I had a preference, I wouldn't call it a screenwriting book. I would call it a book about the philosophy of writing. And it starts out very, very general about what are stories? Why do we tell them? Okay. What's the root of this? And it goes back to why we told stories as tribes and what the information is about and how they still work today and how they don't work today. And then it talks about how to find inspiration. And then it talks about like any kind of story structure, but it's very, very general. And a lot of it is about 
bleeding out the kinds of rules that people think they have about screenplays and how they work. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I think three act structure shouldn't be a thing. I, I'm vehemently against really? that. Really? Oh, absolutely. I thought it was just like a law. No, it, Are there good exactly. movies that don't do it? Most of them. What's a good one that doesn't the, the, do it? All of them. Just because My you God. can fit a movie into three acts doesn't mean it has three acts, and that doesn't mean how it was written. Um I, in fact, that's, I would, a big, that's a myth. You're blowing my mind right now. I, I, I literally have a column called. It's it's actually probably the biggest thing I've ever written to date. Is it was a column called the myth of three act structure, mm-hmm. and it's 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 nonsense. It's complete and total nonsense. Just because movies have uh, movies and stories have beginnings, middles, and ends doesn't mean they're constructive beginnings, middles, and ends. Hold on, I have a high school English teacher I want to call real quick. Oh, oh believe me, I will fight all of them. <laughs> it, and it's it sounds like a silly thing, but um, I go back um, to basically if you if you look at Shakespeare in five act, right? Which he didn't write things as five act. That's one thing to be missed. They just went back and did it later, but they were still really identifying the way he constructed his stories, um, subconsciously or consciously, whatever you want to say to it. Is that's the way we look at them now? And if you look at the five, Shakespearean five act model, it is such a more functional way of approaching things. Here, let me give you a good example of why this matters. So you're telling me you're going to sit down and you're going to write a ninety minute to two hour movie, and you're just going to do three acts when the only other place that's replicated in terms of form is a 22 minute sitcom does three mm-hmm. acts mm-hmm. every single drama you see on tv does five to six acts mm-hmm. so you're telling me you're suddenly gonna like cut the momentum out of this thing in every single bad movie i ever see falls into that same trap of they just tread water in the second act they just waiting to put things together for the finale they have no idea what to do with these characters in terms of momentum in terms of things yeah they put in midpoints yeah they put in little weak stuff and i i'm just blowing up out our all of that i don't know any really good screenwriter who really writes that way some do some don't but some make it overt but some are doing so many of the other things good anyway it doesn't matter every scene should really be its own act. This is this mm-hmm. is this is where I talk about purpose and why scenes need purpose. Is you need to be getting us from the one scene to the next scene to the next scene to the next scene in a way that makes sense, in a way that builds, and in a way that feels right, regardless of anything that's happening in any larger structure. And ultimately, you just have to get to the ending and hammer home your point. That's it. And if you look at the way Chris Nolan makes movies, the, a.k.a. the most popular filmmaker on the planet, mm-hmm. he hasn't written a three-act in God knows how long. Dark Knight is like seven, eight, nine acts, if you look at it according to the way that makes sense. And, of course, somebody can come along and break it into three acts, but that's not the way he writes it. He writes it and get me from point A to point B to point C to point D and so on. And he does so in such a compelling and thorough fashion that it doesn't matter. He's taking you along this journey. And as I'm talking very passionately about this, it's because I, I feel it. I, it's... And, the second I tell people this and the second I talk about this, the second I work people with this, it's just like relief. They're like, thank God. Either they've always felt the same way or it's the most freeing notion in the world. Yeah. And the only people who ever get upset about it are the people who don't understand the writing beyond that. And they're clinging to that idea out of, out of fear. Like, what, what are you talking about? Of course, of course it's three-act. It's No, it's not. There hasn't been... Lawrence of Arabia is not three-act structure. You, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's this myth. It's this insanity that has been perpetuated just from because it's simple, that must be the thing that works. And it's not. Certainly in video games, um, yeah. you're, you're, it's not going to apply... And I think that's what I was getting at when I was saying that, like, your book wouldn't help. And I apologize. <laughs> but what, what, no, what, no. Yeah. What I meant to get back to what we were talking about yeah. before was just that um, I think it's like you, there's 
things you need to do that haven't been invented yet that we're still figuring out. And like yep. when I played The Last of Us, which is widely beloved, and I know this is not a popular opinion, but I played that game and like the first hour in particular is great. Um, but I was like, are you guys sure you didn't want to make a movie? I'm pretty sure this is a movie where I'm just like moving between rooms every now and then. Um, where something like Portal is like a really creative solution to storytelling where there's this character um, talking. And Dark, um, Arkham City actually does the exact same thing where the Joker and Arkham Asylum did the same thing too where the Joker's like taunting you the whole time. So the story's kind of happening as you play the game instead right. of like play the game for five minutes, stop, watch a movie, stop. So I, th- I think like – and Braid does something similar where like it develops and you don't even know what's happening and – um. So I, I see. I, I think the things that get story into games, it's just it's a different thing than movies. And like yeah. the sooner we acknowledge that, like right. recognize that, and that's a different it's a different skill set, you know. Right. And, and I will say that's that's the way games are more pure games. But I will say that I think if 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 a movie's gonna if a movie if if a game's gonna be like The Last of Us and it's gonna go halvesies, you just need to do it well. Yeah, that's of it. Course. And, 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 also, and there's, I'll there's accept for... anything. No. I should also say there's room for game. That's right. my personal preference. <laughs> Obviously, there's room for games and stories, yeah. role-playing games, or something like Gone Home. Yeah. Um, where And then that's what it's about. Like, Gone Home is a really interesting example. Like, that's more yeah. storytelling experiment. Are you familiar with it? Yeah. It's, I, like, I, it's my favorite game of the year. It's, that's more storytelling no. experiment than it is video game. It's yeah. basically not a video game. Like, yeah. it's, it's got the shell of a it's video an, game. But it, it's about exploring space, and that's how you get the conflict. Right, and yeah. it's about... But it's about story. Like, and it's about the, what you bring to it. So that's yeah. cool. Like, yeah. that's allowed. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> that, you know, um, the idea... I'm talking more about the storytelling you see in games like Gears of War and yeah. Call of Duty and, like, the, the, the AAA titles. Cool stuff. I love it. What's the name of the book one more time? Oh, Screenwriting 101. It's on Amazon uh, Kindle, for Kindle. It's an ebook, book um, But you can... Uh, it just came out on iBooks, finally. It's out on that, too. Um, and it's available yeah. and... When you buy it, you get both the Hulk and Bruce Banner yes, versions. I'm not gonna make anybody pay for that. <laughs> so you get, yeah. uh, so uh, you yeah. can read it in Hulk voice or yeah. basically yeah. in Bruce Banner yeah. voice, like you, like yeah. you're just hearing that. Yeah. And it's only uh, four ninety five. It's cool. Yeah. Um, film crit Hulk. And oh, where else can we get you on oh, Twitter? And uh, Twitter film crit Hulk. Uh, regular home on Badass Digests. You can find me haunting around there. Uh, but yeah, on Twitter. Awesome. Well, this was so fun. Yeah, um, man. I just I, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Of course. That is it for this week's Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. The next episode will be up in two weeks, and I am extremely excited to tell you who the guest is. It will be a professor from Indiana University uh, who teaches classes not only about uh, the history of rock and roll and the history of blues, but also specific courses on the Beach Boys, uh, Frank Zappa, and Jimi Hendrix. Those are three different courses. So he teaches an entire class about Jimi Hendrix, and we're going to talk about how he does that uh, here is a little sample from that episode. But uh, before before we get too far into it, surely at some point someone has said to you, and I'm not saying it, but someone has said, you know, college students maybe don't need to learn about Frank Zappa. They don't need to learn even about blues or rock and roll. It's kind <laughs> of, it's, it's, it's not, a, a, shouldn't be a piece of the curriculum. Uh, why, why do you think they need to uh, learn? Well, I, you know, I would say, you could say the same thing about French poetry. You know, I think some people feel that, um, medicine has the taste bad to work. And, or, and what I mean by that is that a college course has to sound like it's no fun. If I said I taught, you know, the history of, you know, Eastern Asia from 1400 to 1600, people would go, ooh, now that sounds like a college course. 
And if I even taught a class on Beethoven, people would say, ooh, that sounds like a college course. I think people have a hard time understanding that, that what has gone on in their life is as valid um, as what they've you know, been taught is important from the past. I don't know how clear it was from that clip, but this is a guest I was extremely excited to talk to. Uh, some of my favorite bands. Uh, that episode will be up in two weeks. Thank you for again for uh, understanding as I work uh, through getting the show back up to its previous schedule. Maybe that'll be the last time I mention it for a while. Um, but next episode, two weeks, you will hear about it uh, on my blog, jeffrubinjeffrubin.com, which is on Tumblr, so you can follow me on Tumblr, uh, Facebook fan page, Twitter, at Jeff Rubin Show. Uh, what can we do? Oh, I'm on Instagram. What is my name on Instagram? I think Instagram is one of those cool services that lets you have a long enough username that you can fit Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. I'm looking at you, Twitter. I'm looking at you, Twitter. You got to fix that. You got to allow longer usernames so I can uh, include my full name twice. Anyway, next episode, two weeks. I will see you there.